You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, I want to invite you now, if you will, to join me. Uh, We have been this last summer and the summers for the last seven years trekking through the Psalms of the Bible. So if you'll open your Bible with me to Psalm 141, that's where we'll be today. Now, if you don't have a Bible, you don't have access to a smartphone that'll get you that, then you'll see a paperback Bible in the chair in front of you. That's our gift to you, in fact. If you don't own a Bible, if you know someone who doesn't own a Bible, that's our gift to them. You can't steal it. We're giving it away. Uh, But don't be afraid of the table of contents. Even if this is one of the first times you've opened a Bible, we believe there's treasures available for for those of us who open the Bible for the first time or the thousandth time. And so our custom is to to walk through books of the Bible as as we're able, and and we've been walking through these psalms. That is, there's 150 songs, poems, or prayers that are compiled into psalms. They're the most quoted books of the Bible in the New Testament. So so the the Christians, uh, uh, and from the Gospels to to the story of the New Testament church that, that began this movement of the Gospel centuries ago, quoted and understood the Old Testament well, and the book of the Bible they quoted the most were these psalms. And so what we find here today is a psalm, as you'll see in the kind of the inscription of Psalm 141, is of David. Now that's important for us as Christians in this sense because we believe that Jesus is the descendant of, quite literally, but the greater and better king that comes in the lineage of David. And so whenever we read the Psalms, as we saw last week, they're, they're, as, as we describe it, they're, they're an appetizer for something bigger. They point to and open our eyes and give us the language of faith even. And today you'll see the language of prayer in the life of a Christian. So if you're not a believer, if this morning you're not a Christian, I'm really grateful you're here. In many ways, we exist because of you. And so we're grateful you're here. I would love for you to eavesdrop, because as we walk through the Psalms, you might hear the language of faith, hopefully, if, if, we're, if we're doing this right, you'll hear the language of faith in the Psalms. In this sense, the Psalms teach us how to talk. And in this particular Psalm, they teach us how to pray. In fact, as a Psalm of David, they teach us as an appetizer how to think about Jesus. I say appetizer because appetizer, traditionally speaking, is something that whets your appetite, right? Don't think Texas Roadhouse or like me eat like six baskets of chips and salsa before the meal so that you're not even hungry. That's not an appetizer. That's, I mean, that's a meal. That's a pseudo dinner, right? Uh, And maybe you don't do that and I'm looking, getting blank stares. Maybe I'm the only one. Good for you. Okay. But think of King David, anytime he's mentioned as an appetizer, a picture of a, a time of prosperity and this, this people of God, Israel, a covenant people. A time of prosperity with a great and powerful, influential, and successful king. But as you dig more deeply into the story of David, you find he's also deeply disappointing. He's painfully flawed. He's an appetizer. Leaves you wanting something more. And so the same thing is true for us as we kind of dig through Psalm 141 My hope is that you'll be appetized. You'll see the language of faith here that we find fully and deeply satisfied for us in Jesus. So let's read through these 10 verses together. You're going to see the kind of the climax, as we saw last week, what's called a chiastic structure. That is, the bookends of the psalm, the beginning and the end, are going to be similar. This is a structure of Eastern poetry. 
I mean, imagine, for example, you didn't have anything to, uh, to write things down, and so you would, you would structure things in such a way that it would be easy to remember. So the first and last parts of this psalm are going to be similar. They're going to be crying out to the Lord for something, and you'll see kind of the climax, the point of this prayer, this model prayer for us, right smack dab in the middle in verse 5. So let's read it together. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity and let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet, my prayer, my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they, shall, uh, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you, I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by. These are God's words to us. My prayer this morning is they'd be more than just ink on a page but they'd be the very voice of our Father to his children. We are eavesdropping on a prayer. In the New Testament, even as we've been walking over the last couple of years through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount teaches his disciples how to pray by teaching them what to pray. And the Psalms like this teach us not only what to pray, but they give us an insight in how we ought to pray. And so this is a prayer against insincerity. It's a prayer about sin. It's a prayer about compromise. It's a plea for survival under a savage attack. And it's a psalm ultimately for us to see how we fight sin. Now, I share with you the structure is kind of, is kind of obvious and that the first two verses are a prayer to be heard. Well, the last two verses, are a prayer to be, did you hear that, kept. Both of them are, O Lord God, do something for me. Hasten to me as I call, hear me, right? And then at the very end, O Lord, my God, the sovereign Lord, you might, even, you might even see in some of your translations, deliver me. In fact, if, if you were to, as we do sometimes, recite the Lord's Prayer, the, the very last phrase before kind of the chronicle uh, benediction at the very end of it is, is what? Lead me not to temptation, but deliver me from evil. I would argue that this psalm is an exposition of that very prayer. 
When Jesus summarizes, I think, a, a, a kind of cry out to God, God, keep me from wickedness. Keep me from things that would destroy me and destroy others. Psalm 141 is an expanded version from David. Again, maybe the appetizer for what Jesus offers. The, the second kind of boundaries are verse 3 and 4 paired with verse 7 and 8. To, to be kept from sin, but then at the end, to be kept from death. And then right there, smack in the middle, you have this, a welcome of righteous rebuke, a strike even. So this prayer is bookended with enemies and wickedness, wickedness that as we see here is in the mouth and even in the heart, and the central verse is about friends. So if I were to summarize all of that, that's how I would do it. This is a prayer about enemies and about friends. we're finding more and more data from the field of psychology and sociology that shares with us that one of the most dangerous epidemics facing, and now we're seeing has deep and powerful physical, physiological effects, negative effects, is loneliness and isolation. Loneliness and isolation. And so this prayer is a model prayer for us to consider enemies what I think is a divine gift, a healing gift offered by God the Father for us in Jesus Christ to the epidemic of our time, loneliness and isolation. Friends. And I want to invite you to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord to deliver from sin, both for you to avoid sin and to protect you from sinners. Now I'm going to use that word quite a bit, uh, but if you're in this room and maybe you're not familiar with, with Christianity, you wouldn't call yourself a believer. I'm really grateful uh, that you're here to listen about some of this stuff, but a language we'll, u- the language we'll use a lot is the word sin. It's a word that shows up hundreds of times in the Bible. Now, now, you might think, well, that's just kind of religious language, but it has a powerful meaning for us, right? Because after all, if you, if you transgress against, say, I don't know, traffic laws, that's a violation, right? If you, traf- if you, if you, trans- if you transgress against or trespass against, uh, even literally, uh, someone say that's called a crime, right? If you if you, if you go against the, the laws of the land, that's called a crime. If you transgress, let's say, in a game, a sport, well, it's not a crime, right? And it's not a violation. It's what? It's a foul, right? You get the idea. It's a penalty, if you were. And so when we say the word sin, all we're saying is that there is, there is a, an entity, a, a person who is offended, in the same way that as you transgress, right, against, against a traffic law, you're transgressing against some, some set of persons or organizations or institutions. And when we say sin, all we're doing is inviting, inviting one another to consider that what we've done is not just between you and I, but it is before the sight and presence of a creating God. So let's walk through this briefly, and I think there's some powerful applications for us. Number one, you see this uh, in the first, first couple of verses, and I want to invite you to, the, to trust these things. Trust the Lord to hear and to help. Trust the Lord. Now, I know for many of you, the things I'm inviting you, and I say I, the things that this psalm is inviting you to trust in about God might seem ridiculous, and that's okay. All I'm inviting for many of you to do is just to at least invite into your consciousness or into your imagination what it would look like to know a God that you could trust. So listen to the the Psalm of David here. He says, O Lord, I call upon you. That word's repeated, call. I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. So there's, there's kind of coupled together is, 
In his call, he's saying, hasten to me. And in his call, he's saying, listen to me, give ear to my voice. Now, again, you're going to see this throughout the psalm, poetic language. Uh, You don't usually say it that way. You don't usually go to a friend and say, give ear to my voice. Uh, Maybe you do. Um, The rest of us are just not that articulate. But this is poetry, after all. And poetry is meant to stir in your imagination something deeper than mere facts. And so he doesn't say, God, listen to me. He says, hasten to me and give ear to my voice. Now, the first thing I, 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 I try to draw your attention to anytime I can, especially if you're new to Christianity, you're not sure about this Jesus thing, is the beauty of the Bible. There is no book that's more honest about what it means to live in a broken world. It, it doesn't gloss over that which is broken in your life and in mine. And it even is honest about the things that we feel that we do not believe are actually true. Namely, that God is far off. We know and trust that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And yet, what does he first highlight when he reaches out to God in this prayer? Hasten to me. Not just come near to me. That'd be one way of saying it, and that's visible in other psalms. Come fast! And so, friend, hear the honesty of this psalm and And I pose to you a question to do that. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wondered if God is near or hears you at all? Then be encouraged that God inspired this psalm to be present for you today. So that you would know that's the good and right and natural feeling in a broken, fallen world marred by sin. To wonder, is there a God? Does God hear me? And so his first prayer, God, come near to me. Come near to me fast. You hear the urgency of that prayer. And the second, listen to me, hear me. And friend, this psalmist is encouraging you and imploring you to trust that the Lord does hear and the Lord does help. Second verse, let that prayer that you've heard be delightful to you. What a beautiful picture that God hears the voice of his children and counts it as incense. That's the language of sacrifice in the evening, the the language of celebrating but experiencing the atonement for sin, the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice, this picture of a restored relationship before God. That's what he's saying. When you hear my prayer, let that prayer be like the work of atonement, that we're drawing near to you, God, because of sacrifice. We know that something and someone must pay for sin. You know that in your heart. Whenever someone wrongs you, that cry deep down, someone must pay, right? Someone had better fix this. He says, let my prayer be received as though things are now fixed. Side note here, it says, lifting up of my hands as, evening, as the evening sacrifice. If you're new to Connection Church, you're going to see people, even as we gather on a Sunday morning, lifting up our hands. Um, that isn't to, I hope, uh, like, that isn't to, to do something that's particularly showy. Um, it's a universal sign of surrender. This is a universal sign of I'm helpless and hopeless. Now, you don't have to do it on a Sunday morning in a crowd full of people. I'm not asking you to do that, but Psalm 134 does command it. Lift up your hands to the Lord. So if it's in personal or private prayer, like, think this. Let the lifting of my hands be received like an evening sacrifice. Second thing, the next little passage here. Trust the Lord, not just to hear and to help, but for righteous wisdom. This is profound. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart 
inclined to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds, and company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Now add all those things up. One, he knows his temptation to sin with his mouth, that even though he's experiencing like distance from God, his temptation will be to say things unrighteous that he should not say. And he says, Lord, protect that. Second thing, not just my, my words, protect my heart. This makes sense for us. Same thing we, we learned in the, in the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says uh, that ultimately the, there's something powerful going on here uh, and, and throughout the, in, in terms of our words and how they're connected to, to our own heart. Later he says, we'll find even in the Gospel of Matthew, that out of the overflow of the heart come the words of the mouth. And so let me just like poke at this. There's no such thing as I'm just saying. There's no, right, hey, you're stupid. And they're like, what? And you're like, well, I'm just saying. There's no such thing. There is no, I mean, it would be great. I, I, wi- I wish the stupid words that have come out of my mouth were disconnected from me. I really, I, oh, there was just some, it was a thing. I was in a fit of rage, right? It was someone else. I wish, that's not what's true here. And, and David connects the two. The words that come out of your mouth, and this is not to set you up for like a gotcha moment. The words that come out of your mouth reveal the state and place of your heart. You didn't say that awful thing because it was a spur of the moment thing. You said that because your heart is in an awful condition and needs lots of atoning grace. Join the club, set a guard over my mouth and my lips, but also protect my heart. And then now protect my deeds, protect me from doing things. And then this is powerful. Protect me from being tempted by the delicacies of those who seem to be benefiting from their wickedness. And so trust the Lord for righteous wisdom. Trust the Lord that if you go to him for these things, he can make your mouth what you cannot. He can make your heart what you cannot. He can make your behavior what you cannot. And he can even help in temptation in ways that you cannot. Trust the Lord for righteous wisdom. Now this connects pretty, I think, pretty classically for the wisdom of James. The wisdom of the letter of James in the New Testament points out that ultimately the tongue is a restless evil. The tongue has the ability to reveal something powerful. I think I might connect the first, second, and third verses here just personally. This is just my own reflection. But knowing that you are heard in the first verses, right? Hear me, O Lord, is what protects your mouth in the third verse. When I know that I am heard and received by a loving Father, it frees me from the need to do things with my mouth, to say things and get things, accomplish things with my own words. Now, if you're more introverted in the room, um, I would say this, is, this applies differently, but equally. It will likely be the case that for me, more extroverted maybe than some of you, will have to repent of things that I said that I ought not have said. But if you who are more introverted, you know the opposite is true. You will regularly have to repent of things that you did not say, that you ought to have said. And it's the same pride, the same pride that comes from like If you know you are heard by the Lord, if you know that your words matter to the Lord, then you don't need to demand to be heard from others. 
And so when we, when we know that the Lord has the ability to change the heart that spews out the words or even weaponize silence, something changes. For us, that means, especially, I think, in a context that is uh, politically, philosophically, ideologically more fragmented and splintered um, than it has been in some time. Uh, I, I don't like when anyone kind of points to cultural trends and like, this is the worst as it ever has been. I'm like, read the Bible, man. Like, no, it's not. Uh, could it get there? Absolutely. Uh, Christians are the people who are just not shocked. They're like, yeah, this is what people do. When people are left to their own devices, they do whatever they want. But notice how the Apostle Paul says this in the book of Romans, chapter 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the distinguishing marks of first century Christianity was a radical commitment to non-retaliation. They were persecuted. They were led, they were led into, the, into the Colosseum and fed publicly to wild animals. And yet there are no accounts of first century Christians riling up a gang of people to get back. Oh, wow. What would it look like that when the peace of Christ, knowing that we've been heard and answered, overwhelmed us so much that we are freed from the need to retaliate with our words in evil. Like, can you just imagine how psycho that would look right now? Set a guard, O oh Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Don't let my heart be filled with any kind of evil. You can trust the Lord, not just to hear and to help, but you can trust the Lord for righteous wisdom, to have the right and righteous words at just the right time. Now, I want you to see here there's a, a contrast in this psalm that's visible in other parts of the psalms, also in scripture, is this contrast between what is righteous and what is evil. The wicked and the righteous are contrasted here. You see, here's the, here's the actions of the wicked, but then in verse five, he's gonna tell us about the actions of the righteous. Now, this isn't new. The, Psalms, the, Psalm, uh, the very first psalm uh, opens with this picture of what it looks like to be a blessed and righteous person. And so the conclusion of the first psalm says, Therefore, the wicked will not stand, unlike the blessed, man in the, uh, the blessed and righteous man in Psalm chapter 1, is like a tree firmly rooted by streams of water. And it sees and it bears fruit. Its, fruit, its leaves do not wither. But it says the wicked are not like that. They're like shaft that will blow away. So therefore, they will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see that contrast? It's visible in other psalms. Uh, it's visible in the 112th Psalm. The righteous will never be moved. He'll be remembered forever. But then the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. And the desires of the wicked will ultimately perish. This is visible throughout the Psalms. But notice it's part of the transition to the next thing. Trust the Lord for righteous and faithful friends. 
trust the Lord for righteous and faithful friends. And this is the climax, as I shared with you, of the psalm. This is kind of the peak, and I, I, I would contend to you, it's the most controversial. It's going to make you feel the most uncomfortable, so let's go there together. Let a righteous man strike me, it is actually a kindness. Let that righteous man rebuke me, it is oil for my head. That oil, the language of anointing we've seen in the last couple of, in the last couple of weeks, this, this picture of anointing, of pouring oil on a guest, but also anointing someone like a priest or, or someone for a sacred purpose. That's, that's what it is. When you anoint with oil, you're, you're, it's refreshing, uh, after all, because if, you, if you're in, a, in the ancient Near, Near East and you can't bathe every day, um, anointing oil that smells good is good for you, good for everybody. Uh, it's refreshing. It's, it's, uh, it, it makes you more pleasant to be around, after all. Uh, but it also is it's, it's a way to set apart for a divine purpose. Anointing is to say this person. This person is set apart for a divine plan, a divine calling. And the picture here is that if a righteous person rebukes you, that is, corrects you, then it's to be refreshing. After all, benefit makes you smell better with all your friends. But it's to be set apart for a divine and holy purpose. And then he says what, what you and I ought to say is, let my head not refuse it. Now this prayer, this, the climax of this prayer is here because the Lord is gracious and kind to know how little we would want this for ourselves. Let me give you a spin. Uh, take a little stroll. The Apostle Paul speaks to Timothy in his letter in the New Testament. A warning. There, uh, there is a time that's coming in which people will build up and raise up and surround themselves with people who tell them what they want to hear. He says, a time is coming. People will not endure true and sound belief. Instead, they will, they will raise up for themselves teachers and speakers who tell people or tell them exactly what they want to hear. Literally, it says, who tickle their ears, right? I, just, I mean, I, I love that picture. Like, one day, people are going to not put up a sound doctrine, and they're going to be like, oh, we do, right? I like I have bubble issues, don't touch my ear, that's not cool. But this idea that a time will come, Paul is warning Timothy, in which people will not have an appetite for the truth, but instead they will rather hear what sounds good to them. Now, Paul was not a mathematician, but you and I are watching the mathematical fulfillment of that prophetic vision. It's called an algorithm. And all you have to do is Google something. Friend, every social media platform that exists is built on this algorithm. That time that Paul predicted is alive and kicking in your social media. It is, it is an algorithm built to tickle your ears, to tell you what you want to hear, to reinforce beliefs, not to challenge them, not to receive rebuke or correction. It is there to own your enemies, right, rather than have a guard over your mouth. Friend, make no mistake, this, this prayer that we would be open to correction might be the most countercultural and the most powerful thing you can encounter this morning. The thought that this morning, this psalm might interrupt your thinking and you would begin to invite ideas and observations that you do not already agree with 
might be all you need to reflect on this morning. It just, just, okay. I mean, download, it's a verse called, it's a, it's a app called Verses, helps you memorize the Bible. Download it now and spend the rest of our time memorizing verse five. Forget anything I say. That, that will be a worthy use of your time. Let a righteous person, now this is poetic language, it doesn't mean actually strive, I mean that's, not, it's meant to be poetic, it's meant to be extreme, but it's meant to stir up images that when someone corrects you and criticizes you, isn't that how it feels? After all, um, we're, we're living in, in, in a day and age where in the last 100 to 150 years, the the concept of self and your identity as a self-made entity, namely that you can build and craft and express your own self, right? It, it's too fragile to actually handle this verse, isn't it? Because after all, once you've crafted yourself, once you've discovered yourself, right, you've, you know who you are and you begin to project it and, and profess it, you must, you absolutely must surround yourself with people who affirm it. And anyone who doesn't affirm your concept of yourself must be dismissed. What would it look like to pray this prayer? Let a person in righteous shake me with what's true about myself. What would it look like to see it as a kindness? What would it look like to see it as an anointing for a sacred purpose? Friend, trust the Lord for righteous and faithful friends. Proverbs 27 says it this way, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse, right? Like numerous, fake, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Admit that we would often prefer the kisses of an enemy, the flattery of someone who doesn't have our best interests in mind to someone who loves us, telling us what's actually true. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, as he's expounding upon this, this is a, a Baptist minister from centuries ago, depend upon it, the man who will tell you your faults is your best friend. It may not be a pleasant thing for him to do it, and he knows that he is running the risk of losing your friendship, but he is a true and sincere friend. Therefore, thank him for his reproof, and learn how you may improve by what he tells you. Friend, you can trust the Lord for righteous and faithful friends. This is a model prayer for us and our temptation to be isolated and to think the very best thoughts about ourselves, rather than to understand what's true and experience transforming grace in that place. This might be the most powerful part of the psalm for you today because we often want the benefits of Jesus, for example, and none of the commitments. We want all the blessing, but we don't, we don't actually want to give up any control of our lives. I want joy and happiness, but don't you dare tell me how to live my life. And we have something, we have something here unlike any other world religion. We have a, a group of people who have encountered the living Christ and have now given up our own will to fix our own lives. We've given up our best efforts. After all, that's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. A poor in spirit person, someone who's crushed, loves help. Loves help. Now, there's a difference here. There's a difference between someone who needs help and someone who wants help. If you've ever tried to help a family member in a difficult situation, you know that. 
And the picture here is of a person not who just needs help, but wants help. And this is what's beautiful, because this makes Christianity and the movement that it rises and falls around the world in difficult and impossible, persecuted parts of the world even, it makes it a, a miraculous kind of a thing. Because Christianity is for the down and out. Christianity is for the people who are so, are so aware of their own flaws and failures that they invent or they invite the kind and careful correction of people around them. Because they know that faithful are the wounds of a friend. No one wants to hear about their sin. But here's my one warning with that. If you're unwilling to hear about your sin, then you are unable to hear the good news of our Savior. Jesus is a friend of sinners. If that doesn't make you, if I say, well, all the sinners stand up, right? You know, your first inclination would be like, well, you know, I'll stand up after they do, right? Like, but what if I told you, would all the sinners stand up? And oh, by the way, Jesus came as a friend to sinners. Do you, do you feel it lighten up your feet just a bit? You get the idea? So, so to here is this idea that like, if we're going to be protected in what we say, it will be by the care and love of people who know us best. Now, let me give you this, the, the caveat to this. If you're excited in what I just said about rebuking someone, this is not for you. This verse is not for you. Like if, you, like if you're like, ooh, I'm going to strike someone or righteous. Like, okay. Not for you. It's not helpful. You, you are likely striking to keep people from actually correcting you. I bet. I know that from a little bit of personal experience. So if you're excited about this, you're like, oh, I really want to rebuke someone, it's not time. You're not there. But if you look, again, this is, this, is what's, this is what's wild. It says, let a righteous man strike me. It is kindness. That word there is hesed, loving kindness. You can read the book of Ruth. It's an illustration of hesed love, that, this idea of sacrificial and giving love. It's the character of God and the love he has for us. And so if your desire to rebuke someone and correct them is not out of a deep love, a deep care for them, and a willingness to walk with them through whatever it is that you're going to bring to their attention, this is not for you. For you, you get to memorize verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Okay? <laughs> Keep watch over the door of my lips. Because whatever you say won't be oil for your head. It won't be anointing and caring for someone. And so, friend, trust that God will give you this. Ask God that he would prepare you to receive the loving kindness, his loving kindness, of a faithful friend. And here's how I'll illustrate it before we move on to the, to the last two parts. I assure you, if I have been any help at any given moment in my life to any of you in any small way, it is a direct result of the correction of someone else. I promise you. I mean, if I've ever been at any help of you, I would not have done that naturally. It was because someone in love put their arm around me and said, hey, maybe don't say that, right? <laughs> um, and I'll give you a silly example. I got to share with our, our core team of our gospel community even this, uh, even this last week as we're thinking about how this kind of community uh, would begin to exist of, of faithful and, 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 and fluent good news and encouragement, even if it means exhortation and rebuke across, across one another. And I, I told a story of my own, 
uh, of my own growth in this particular area. Earlier on in my relationship, um, the Lord gave me a gift. And, and so if you're like, I could rebuke, I don't know, a spouse often can be a good gift. My, uh, the Lord saw fit that need, the Lord was like, you really need this. Uh, I'm going to give someone that will do this. And so my wife is incredibly gifted in this particular way. And if you've ever heard me say anything dumb and you're like, should I tell him? Don't worry about it. She will. I promise you. And earlier on in our relationship, she would say things. We'd be like on the way home from hanging out with friends or something, and I'd be driving along happy and smiling, and she's like, you know, you're the only one who thought that was funny. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I don't want to tell you how many times I heard that. But I do want to tell you it's been a long time since I've heard it. Like, the Lord has been gracious. I, I'm not there yet. I will still certainly have to apologize for things that I said that I ought not have said. Be prepared for that. But praise God, I have experienced a ton of grace in this. I've experienced a ton of grace in this. So much so that when you get good at this, when you start to invite the kind of grace that comes from this, you start to actively solicit rebuke. That is, you actively solicit interaction you stop waiting and bracing. You start asking. Even now, I'm soliciting it. I'm looking at you. Is there any, like, I'm, look, I'm soliciting. Say something stupid, and at least, at least 20 or 30 of you will be like, Ugh. and I'll be like, oh, yeah, you're right. That's, oh, let me stop right now. You get the idea? Like, whenever you start to realize this is what good friendship looks like, you start to receive it as a grace. Surround yourself with friends that are better than you. Surround yourself with friends. Man, I can't tell you the blessing that I have with, with people who are elders in this church, who lead in this church, or people who serve in this church who are better than me, and I get to learn from them. I just get to see, I go, oh, yeah, that, how did that work? Did that work? Should we do that? You get the idea? I say that to encourage you. This might seem like something that at first is terrifying, and I want you to ask the Lord why that is, because you can trust him to bring faithful friends you can trust him. You can trust him to bring the friends that are not sent to you by the algorithm. You can trust him to bring people who would actually bring righteousness, a divine anointing over your life. This is a model prayer for us. Now lastly on this point, I know for many of you this is terrifying and just even talking about it as a, as a central point, like the peak of this particular, the psalm is, is terrifying. I just want to invite you to wonder why that is. I'm certain maybe somebody wielded this badly. Maybe someone, right, they were just keeping it real and they were very hurtful to you. And I, I want to encourage you to, to take this to the Lord. For whatever reason, if you're like, I don't want, I don't want faithful friends that will correct me. If you feel that way, it's a, that's a right and natural feeling. That's why, that is why this is here, right? If you keep people at a distance, uh, this is why this, this psalm and this prayer is here, so that we would, you know, rehearse. Lord, let my head not refuse it. Let my head not refuse it. And I'll tell you that every single person who's ever rebuked me, when I, when I hear it, like, corrected me, I can immediately think of 10 reasons why I should dismiss what they're saying. Let me, let me say it strongly this way. Everyone who's ever rebuked me has always had a log sticking out of their own eye. Everyone who's ever rebuked me has always had like something really messed up in their life and made me go like, why would I listen to you? You're, right? And here's, I'm telling you that because the inner lawyer in you will be able to do the same. 
And you'll be able to think of the 10,000 reasons why you shouldn't listen to that. And I'm inviting you to consider with me this. What if the Lord is anointing us for some divine purpose? He loves you just like you are. That's a fact. But he loves you too much to abandon you that way. And so whatever reason that you might think, I don't want this. After all, this is what discipleship is. This is what the local church is, that we've committed to be this for one another. We've committed to not bail on one another if we do it poorly or we reject it. We invite it because we see this as a means, a means of deliverance. Here's a second part. Yet my prayer, now he turns back to evil, but not just the evil in his mouth and the evil in his own heart and his evil in his own temptation. He turns to the evil that exists in the people that are around him. Now, verses 6 and 7 are just complicated. Uh, I'm going to give you a, 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 a brief little rabbit trail that might help you here, but verse 7 especially. It's difficult to translate, and so if you, as you read over it, you're like, uh, yeah. So there's very little agreement on this, but I'll give you the couple of ways that it's understood typically. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, that's kind of like a, a euphemism that they're translating there. Apparently, you know, again, like the idea, it, it was common to think of if someone was, you were going to wish something bad on someone, you'd wish that they would be thrown over a cliff. But he says that when these wicked judges, the, the people whose evil deeds are conspiring against him and apparently his people, they're going to be thrown over the cliff, and then, then the people will hear my words and think, oh, these are actually delightful. They're pleasant. So the idea is that the Lord will do something, and he's crying out to the Lord. Now, this is what's called as, as an imprecatory statement that is simply to ask God to bring vengeance. Now, this is common in the Psalms, and it's, it might seem weird to you, but you are invited to ask God to bring justice and vengeance, now, there's two things I'll add to that. Number one, we regularly love the idea of justice for others to the neglect of righteousness in ourselves. Notice, this psalm pushes against that. It is inviting justice, but it, it is after saying, Lord, keep me from saying awful things. Keep me from desiring and being tempted by it. You get the idea? So that's the first caveat. Yes, ask God to bring vengeance. Ask God to smite whoever, me, anyone. Ask, you're free to do that. The second thing, though, the caveat, is you trust God with his answer. You trust God with his answer. Remember what we read just a moment ago? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We refuse retaliation and vengeance, not because we don't think it's valuable. It's just that we think we're corrupt. We think God does it better. And so, friend, this will sound weird, but yes, cry out to God for vengeance and justice. And one of two things will happen. Either God will be glorified in all of eternity by pouring his wrath out on that person, or God will be glorified for all of eternity by pouring out his wrath on Jesus instead. So, yes, ask God to smite that in-law of yours. But trust him in the answer. Trust him with the answer. He says, when that vengeance comes, even in the midst of their circumstances, you get a picture of death here, as if to say, we're in this place of death, outside of Sheol, the picture of the grave. Our bones are scattered. That's how bad it is. That's how much vengeance, that's why we want vengeance. The worst possible thing could be happening. We've been abandoned to death, 
One, one poetic commentary says it this way, you get the picture that, the, that, the, that Sheol, the grave, is a mouth that swallowed Israel, these people, and then is drooling the bones and remnants. You get it? At, at the mouth of the grave. It's as if the, the mouth has had its fill eating David and his people, and, and it's just drooling and like, he's like, like cookie monster crumbs from the grave. You get the idea? At the mouth, it's just coming out. And then verse 8, but, but my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. So while we can trust the Lord for vindication, cry out to God by all means. Use it, memorize this. Cry out to God for vengeance against that person. We trust the Lord. You can trust the Lord for vindication. The Lord will see evil for what it is both in your mouth, as we saw here, in the door of your lips, in your own heart, in your own temptation, and also in the world. The Lord is not blind to it. It might seem like it, but the Lord sees more. But, starting in verse 8, trust the Lord for protection and deliverance. But my eyes are toward you, and you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they the wickedness that, the, that he sees around them is laid for me and the snares of the evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass safely by. What a beautiful picture here. What a beautiful picture. You can trust the Lord for protection and deliverance. You get this imagery of traps being laid to tempt. We saw like the, the, the delicacies of evildoers, the people who want to tempt them, tempt them to turn to other gods. You see this picture of the temptation that's out there as traps that are laid, and yet, despite their best efforts, it becomes comical. Now, this is, shows up elsewhere in other psalms, but it's, you're meant to laugh. Let the wicked fall into their own nets, right? Like, it's, you're meant to think kind of slapstick comedy of, like, setting a trap, building a hole, and then placing it, uh, and falling into their own trap. And then, and, then the, and then the person for whom the trap was laid just walking by. You get the idea? It's meant to be comical. I love this imagery because I can say to you, I know what this feels like. Let me put it to you this way. I can imagine Satan and his minions, even now, sitting around a table talking about me. I can imagine them at a table talking about me and saying something like, we had him. Like, did you see him? Did you see what he was like? Did you see him from age, I don't know, 14 to 22? Like, did, like are you kidding? How did he get away? How on earth did we lose that? You, you get it? I don't know if this is how you feel, but when I think about the grace of God shown to me, this is what it looks like. I look back on my own life and I'm like, holy smokes, I was this close to destroying my life and the life of everyone around me, and here I am, passing by, okay, right? And if you, again, if you looked at me or anyone else and like, how is that, how is, that's not fair. You're right. What a beautiful and powerful picture of grace that the people who do not deserve it, in the end, ultimately and eternally because of Christ, get off scot free. And once that starts to sound too good to be true, now you're hearing it. Once that sounds ridiculous, not because they get away with it. Oh, oh no, they don't. Jesus pays for it. 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's just that the vengeance isn't poured out on the person who's being trapped. The vengeance is poured out on Jesus. Now look back through, through the lens of David's greater son, Jesus, and see he is the one who called out to the Lord and was heard. Even as he cried in dereliction from the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the one who ultimately, even in his speech, did not sin. He's the one that even in his strong and powerful and truthful words spoke in love. And he speaks a better word. And if he convicts you of sin, if he says what is uncomfortable, what you don't want to hear, it's only so that he can say to you and whisper in your ear what is eternally true. Come to me, you're mine. He is the righteous man. He is the one thrown over the cliff. He is the one who went to the grave, but praise God, was spat out. He is the one that was ultimately entrusting himself to the Father who justifies rightly and resurrected him from the dead on the third day. Look through the lens of this and see the power of Jesus. Here's the end of the story. Do you remember that first part where we started? Hear my prayer, God, deliver me. This is the end of the story. Revelation chapter 5. The Apostle John gets a vision of all things coming together in the end around the throne of Jesus. And the fate of the world is in scrolls that no one can open. And he begins to weep because the fate of the universe is hopeless apart from Christ. But this is what he says. And then between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Don't miss that. It was standing as though it had been slain. I don't know the last dead animal you saw, but it wasn't standing. You get it? Jesus is standing victorious over death, not because he outran it, but because he bears the marks of it in his body and is resurrected resurrected victorious over it. He's standing, even though he has been slain. This is meant to be hope for us. Seven horns and seven eyes is the picture of his power and his vision and understanding, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll, right? The scroll, no one could handle the scroll. And then Jesus, the slain, the slain lamb, goes, I'll take care of this. And then the rest of the chapters of, the, of Revelation are the unfolding of all that God brings to pass through the slain lamb of Jesus, holding it at his right hand. He took it from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And this is important. Listen to me very carefully. Remember what I asked you? Have you ever prayed like the prayer of this psalmist and felt like the Lord didn't hear you? Have you ever been in a place where like you cried out to God, oh God, but you felt like it just bounced off the ceiling and you thought no one ever heard me. No one's going to do anything about this. No one knows about this. Listen to the story of the end of all things around the throne of Jesus is Golden bowls full of incense held by these elders, which are the prayers of the saints. The incense is burning. I don't know what it's going to be like, but one day in Jesus, all of our prayers will be answered. This is what the slain lamb does. They sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests of our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And here's the weird part. The incense, the golden bowls full of prayers, this is it. We're going to be around the throne of God, celebrating his redemptive work, delivering us from the work of the enemy, passing right by his traps, and the smell will be the smell of your answered prayers. Now, I don't know what that's like. I really, I mean, that's poetic. I'm being poetic. 
I don't know. I, 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 don't know what, I don't know what answered prayers smell like. But friend, because of Jesus, we will. So friend, you can trust the Lord to hear and to help. You can trust the Lord to give you wisdom. You can trust the Lord to give you faithful friends. You can trust the Lord to give you vindication because you can trust the Lord to deliver and to redeem. That is exactly what he has done. That is exactly what the true and better David that came along accomplished for you and for me. That's the kind of freedom and joy that's offered for you and me, the kind of comfort. And did you hear that word? Refuge. Are you running? You can hide and take refuge in him. Refuge. This is what we're offered. So I don't know where some of this lands for you. For some of you, it might just simply be uh, that you begin to think about, I don't know, are there areas in my life where I need to invite friends to be closer? Is there healing that the Lord needs to bring so that I can have these kinds of friends? Is there distance that needs to be between me and enemies? Enemies that are in my mouth, in my own heart, in my own temptation, enemies in the world. And maybe for some of you, it's just like the last little bit. Would you set your eyes on the Lord, the Lord who offers refuge, the Lord who in Jesus Christ, all who look to him, all who come to him, find comfort, forgiveness, Jesus is the one who hears us. Jesus gives us the new mouth, tongue, and heart. Jesus was the most faithful friend who speaks the best word you can imagine. Jesus is our vindication because Jesus is our protector, and Jesus is our deliverer. Let's pray together and thank him for just that. Lord, we thank you. We, we stumble upon a poetic prayer here about things that are beyond our imagination. I pray that even now, by the power of your spirit, you would show us what my words could not possibly illustrate. Thank you that you hear our prayers. Maybe for some in this room, the most important thing that could happen is that even now they would cry out to you. Might they do that now? In their own words. Even if it's just help. Thank you that you hear. You are near to us. And because of Jesus, we have full and unbridled access with the Father. We can approach, because of grace, his throne with confidence. I pray that some, even this morning for the first time, would do that. They would experience the powerful love that you've demonstrated for us in Christ, our faithful friend. For some of us, this is simply something we need to commit to memory. Give us the language of this kind of prayer. Help us to be aware of not just the evil in the world, but the evil in our own mouths, in our own hearts, in our own temptation. Help us to acknowledge our, our own need for this prayer. Let us not refuse the correction and care that people offer. And for some of us, let us not refuse the encouragement and exhortation. Thank you that in Jesus we have all these promises come true. The one who hears, the one who is righteous and good, the one who speaks an eternal and better word, the one who redeems and restores, the one who by a miracle of his own death and resurrection, allows us to pass by the traps of the enemy and get off scot-free. Thank you that you have paid our penalty so that we simply receive freedom. We thank you for these gifts available to us in Jesus. We receive them now as an implanted word, a seed by faith. Amen.